Thanks, Michael. So if, if any of you have been in our offices here at the church or even out in the lobby or back here in our small library, you'll notice that there are a lot of bookshelves and books in this church. Not uncommon uh, for most churches, especially as Presbyterians, we love our books. But there are hundreds and hundreds of books in this church. And the books, if you walk around and look at our different desks and the books that we have out, those books say something about us, about our church, about each of the books on different people's desks. If you went and saw my desk, I have a number of different commentaries on the book of James right now since we've been going through that. If you go to Zach's desk, he's got a number of books on next-gen ministry. Jenny Lynn's desk right now has a book on Lent because she was working on that Lent guide. She has some books on Ecclesiastes because we've been doing that in our Bible study. Whenever you see those books, the ones that we display or the ones that we have out, they usually will tell us a little bit something about a person. So I want you to imagine that you had a bookshelf. Let's say it's a bookshelf when someone walks into your house or into your office, and you can only put a few books on there. What books might you choose? What books would you have on display? Your favorite books, books that were really impactful to you, and that, that might tell something about you. Now, certainly these books aren't going to tell everything there is to know about you, but they could be a good starting point to understanding a little bit about who you are and the things that you care about, the things that are important to you. Now, this isn't a perfect illustration, but in a similar way, the Great Commission is like one of those sets of books for Jesus. They don't tell us everything that Jesus considers important, certainly, but they are a set of instructions that give us a picture of some of the things that Jesus cares about. As he leaves his followers behind, what are some of the things that he wants his church, his people, to do when he's gone. So we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to look at the different books on that bookshelf. Look with me again at verses 19 and 20. And if we think in terms of the verbs of this verse being the books on our bookshelf, then we would have four books. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. Now you might ask, are any one of these books more important or any one of these books bigger or more prom more prominent, so to speak, on the bookshelf. Now, I won't bore you with Greek grammar, but the answer is yes. In the Greek, one of these is the imperative. One of these is the primary command, and the other three build on that. And the one that's the primary command is make disciples. So Jesus wants us to understand that the main emphasis of his command is making disciples. The famous Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon said that disciple making is the first business of the church. The church and Christians are to be about making disciples. Now, question obviously then for us is what is a disciple? It's not a, a word that we often hear outside of Christian circles in our world today, so it's worth talking about. Context-wise, in the first century, if you wanted to learn a particular trade or you wanted to study a particular area of knowledge, you didn't enroll in a certain school, you didn't go to college and pick a, a certain kind of major. Instead, you would commit yourself to a certain teacher. You would follow him and learn from him, and then you were his disciple. And this is the this is the picture we get all through the Gospel of Matthew when he talks about the disciples. In the Gospel of Matthew, a disciple 
is a learner and a follower of Jesus. But in Jesus, we have something significantly different about discipleship. Because Jesus isn't just another earthly teacher. He isn't offering us just another uh, form of intellect, another form of wisdom, another specialty to study. Instead, in Jesus, we have a teacher who not only teaches, but he also dies for his disciples. He lays his life down for his disciples to create in them new life. Well, that means then that to make disciples in Jesus' context is very different than what it means to make disciples in a worldly context. It's not just people who learn to be externally obedient to the things that Jesus says. Instead, for Christians, to make a disciple is to invite someone into a relationship with Jesus. To invite someone to have Jesus as both their teacher and their savior, as their master and their Lord. This is a radically different form of discipleship than what the world invites us to. And that's what Jesus invites each of us into. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're curious, or maybe you came this morning with someone else, but you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, first of all, thank you so much for being here with us. But this is what Jesus invites you into. And I want you to consider for a moment that the idea of being a disciple isn't just a scriptural idea. It isn't just an idea we find in the Bible. It's actually something that you already do, even if you don't follow Jesus. Every person in the world is a disciple of something. Every person has a worldview. They have a a way of thinking about life and purpose and the world. That worldview is what you follow. It's what you're a disciple of. And so when you leave this morning and you're considering what we've talked about, about who Jesus is and about the discipleship that he offers, I want you to also reflect on the current way that you view life. How do you currently see the world? How do you understand purpose? What does the thing that you're following say about that? And does it seem to make sense? Does it seem to work in your life? See, as I've gone through my own journey of faith, I've tried some of these other paths of discipleship, other worldviews, other ways of thinking about life, and I keep finding them lacking. I keep finding them missing something. Even as you hear the world talk about the different ways of running in this world, the different ways of living in this world, there seems to be something missing, something lacking. But in Jesus, we find a discipleship, we find a path, a way of seeing and understanding the world that, in my experience, actually makes sense. And more importantly than that, in Jesus, we find not just a new, unique type of teaching. We actually find a change of who we are fundamentally from the inside out. Now, for those of you that are Christians this morning, those of you that would say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I do follow him then this is a challenge for us as well because it it causes us to pause and ask where do we stand in our discipleship with Jesus and in his call for us to make disciples. When we examine our own hearts, do we think about following Jesus as only external adherence to what he teaches? So that as long as we're following the rules, as long as we're doing the right things, then we're okay with him. Or do we actually live 
and teach a radical commitment to Jesus that's born out of a new heart? To the way that we talk to friends and neighbors and coworkers about Jesus, does it invite them just to, to say a, a prayer so they don't go to hell? Or does it invite them into a, a life of faith and repentance and discipleship with Jesus? Are our own hearts committed to that kind of life with Jesus? These are hard questions, but we have to, if we're going to take the call of discipleship in this passage seriously, we have to wrestle through those questions. So if that's what disciple making is, then how do we go about it? Because we know from other parts of the Bible that it's only the Spirit of God that can actually change a person's heart, yet here Jesus commands us to be involved in the process, to go and make disciples. So how do we go about that? Well, those are where the other books on our bookshelf help us. We make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. Let's look at each of those briefly. So the language of going has led many people to believe that the Great Commission is concerned primarily with some other place than the place we currently are. Countless missionary appeals have been made with the idea that going somewhere else is inherently better than anything that might be done where someone already is. Many of you know I worked with a campus ministry for uh, 10 years, and in my work with Campus Crusade, with crew, many times students developed the idea that going on foreign missions were a greater form of service in the kingdom than other kinds of work, or even that coming on staff with crew or going into ministry full-time was somehow a greater form of service to the kingdom than other kind of work. And I want you to know that's a terrible misunderstanding of the command to go and make disciples. But we also don't want that pendulum to swing too far the other direction because in response to that error, sometimes I would hear in my campus ministry time, that go just means to make disciples as you go about living your life. That neglects to remember that the command is to go and make disciples of all nations. See, the command to go, this idea of going, requires that Christians would make disciples in the places where they're at and that some of us would be called away from our homeland to the nations. The command for Christians to go and make disciples is for our neighborhoods and our workplaces and for parts of our cities and our country and our world where there are people that live who don't know Jesus and aren't like me. And that should be a challenge for us as Christians. It should be a challenge for our church. Does our church, does restoration go well? Do you go well? Does restoration look like the city of St. Louis? Ethnically? Socioeconomically? And in the, in the ways it doesn't, what does that say about our going? Are we missing something? We're commanded to go to the areas of our city, in our country, in our urban areas, our rural areas, where there are people who don't know Jesus. See, people that don't know Jesus are not commanded to come to our church. We're commanded to go to them and to make disciples. And that challenge should be pressing against us constantly, encouraging us to ask questions. Every church does not have to be everything to every person. But when you look 
at your church and you see places where you aren't going, it should elicit questions. What are we doing? Are we doing it right? Are we following the vision that the Lord's given us? And so it should create a tension for us to always be examining ourselves in light of this command. So as we find ourselves making disciples in the places where we go, what's that going to look like? How, do we, how are we able to measure that? How do we know? What will characterize these disciples that are being made? Well, I think we see that in the last two books that are on our shelf, and they go together. They're intertwined, this idea of baptizing and teaching. So in baptism, what we see is not just a commitment to Jesus as our Lord, but actually in baptism we see an entrance into a new family, into a covenant community. Baptism unites people who come from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of places and all kinds of nations under one family, the new family of Jesus. The Bible knows nothing about a Christian who's not baptized, a Christian who hasn't been brought in to the covenant community. It also doesn't know anything about a Christian who's not then taught the ways of that new community, the ways of Jesus. And so those two things baptism and teaching are linked together. A disciple visibly joins the covenant community, the church. Then they're taught the commands and the life of that covenant community. And so a disciple is a member of a new family under Jesus, and then they live and begin to live with the values and the ethics and the worldview of that new family. So as a church, we should constantly ask ourselves, about how we're inviting people into that. How are we inviting people in to this new covenant community? And are we teaching what Jesus taught? It's important for us to recognize those words right after teach or right after what our translation might say, observe. It says in verse 20, observe all that I've commanded you. Are we a church that's willing to teach and observe all that Jesus commands. You know, Jesus' teachings and commands are under a lot of scrutiny in our culture today. Are we a church that's willing to follow those commands? Are we willing to follow Jesus' commitment to a biblical sexual ethic? What about Jesus' clear concern for the elevation of and the care of women, the poor, the marginalized in our world? How about the affirmation of the Old Testament and its clear teaching about the protection of the unborn and justice for the foreigner? Or do we label these views as too conservative or too liberal and seek ways to escape their implications because they're held by a political party that we might happen to disagree with? The Great Commission demands that we obey all that Jesus has commanded us. And unfortunately, I think these days we see many Christians and churches and pastors that seem to have allegiance more towards political parties than observing all that Jesus has commanded. So making disciples is not just about what happens to a person after they die. To truly teach all that Jesus commands doesn't give us the option of reducing the Great Commission down to individual people and what happens to their souls when they die. Certainly those things are important. Jesus' work was individual, but it was also cosmic. Jesus came to restore individual people 
and to, and to restore the entire creation. So that means the Great Commission requires that we teach about the social implications of the gospel that Jesus talked about. We have to teach about the love of Christian and non-Christian neighbor that Jesus emphasized. We have to teach about the way that sin has infected individual hearts and systems and structures in our world that Jesus wants to redeem. We do a massive disservice to the Great Commission when we only explain it as having to do with people's eternal destiny, which is important, but not to the eternal destiny of all creation. We have to teach all that Jesus commanded. Now, if I were to end the sermon right here, many of us could say amen to the Great Commission. But to go back to our earlier illustration, any good bookshelf, in order to keep the books in place, in order for them to be displayed prominently, is going to have bookends. Bookends serve as the foundation to keep the books in their place, to keep them central from not collapsing, not falling over. So this morning we're going to end by reframing the Great Commission in its Jesus-centered terms. We're going to end by looking at the two bookends of the Great Commission, Jesus' authority and Jesus' presence. We'll look briefly at each of those. Look again at verse 18. Jesus begins with this, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. The first thing Jesus does is help his disciples see where the true power for this commission is going to come from. Their call to go out in the world with the gospel is not based on their own authority. Even though Jesus has commissioned them as apostles to take this message, that's not where the power comes from. Jesus describes his authority here as both absolute and universal. He says, I have all authority. Jesus' authority in your life and in the world is absolute. There's no authority he doesn't have. There's no competition for his authority than, that can succeed. He also says that his authority is universal. Note the language here. He says it covers heaven and earth. There's no person, no place that exists in the world, in all of creation, that's not under the authority of Jesus. And that kind of authority should be convicting to us. Because if Jesus' authority is absolute and universal, then there's no area of my life as one of his followers that isn't under obligation to him as my king. The famous Christian theologian Abraham Kuyper said it this way, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Jesus does not cry, Mine. I talked about earlier, People have thought often that the Great Commission is more concerned to foreign missions or to full-time ministry or to individual souls. But if Jesus has absolute universal authority, then why would he only be concerned about faraway places? Why would he only work through those who are called into some full-time Christian service? Why would he only be concerned about people's individual souls and not all the rest of his creation? No, instead, it's that Jesus' authority actually connects the church to everything in creation that needs redemption. The Great Commission expects all of Jesus' followers everywhere to be part of all of his redemptive work everywhere. That authority calls for us to evaluate our lives in Great Commission terms. Whether you're a pastor 
or an employee, a coworker, a spouse, a parent, a child, a friend? Am I pursuing kingdom building work of the Great Commission in every area of my life and in every place that God happens to put me? It's a good question for all of us to ask, and its foundation has to be the authority of Jesus that's absolute and universal. But all that authority can be intimidating. It can be easy to look and say, Jesus, the creator of the universe, has commanded you to go out and do this work. That can feel overwhelming. And it should, right? Jesus has left the discipleship of all the nations in our hands to deal with. Has he left us that alone? Well, fortunately, there's another bookend of the Great Commission. And that's the end of verse 20. Jesus finishes with this. Behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. Literally, the translation here is, I am with you all the days until the end. There is not a day that goes by for a follower of Jesus that he is not with you. He promises there will never be a day in the future that he's not going to be with you. If the first bookend was intimidating, this one should be comforting. The moment that we feel overwhelmed by this work that Jesus calls us into, and we should feel overwhelmed, we're reminded that Jesus goes with us. You know, I've been in some form of ministry for almost 20 years. Every one of those years, people have come to me with besetting sins in their life. They've come to me with wrong theology, no biblical knowledge, and sometimes they don't seem to even want to grow. And when there have been people that I've been able to help in their walk with Jesus, I'm reminded of the thousands of people on the campus I'm at or in the city I'm at that don't know Jesus. It's overwhelming. In the past few years, we've been confronted by COVID, by racial tension, by political upheaval. We've been reminded about how the systems of our world are broken, how in need they are of redemption. That's overwhelming. I haven't even talked about me yet. I have besetting sins and wrong theology. Sometimes I'm not motivated to grow. I'm part of the broken systems that I see in the world. I've supported them either, either knowingly or unknowingly. If I just even had my own self to worry about, I could be overwhelmed. See, if we're left to ourselves to fulfill the Great Commission in every area of our lives and our cities and our world, then that task can seem overwhelming and hopeless. I can't even accomplish it in my own life, much less the life of the world. So what hope is there? Well, we have the hope of this table. How far did Jesus go to be with us, to be present with us? He went to the cross. The one who had all authority and could command us to go was so committed to going with us that he died for us. Let that be your hope and encouragement this morning as you go out with this task of the Great Commission that Jesus commands us to go, but he goes with us. 
that Jesus' power and his presence, his authority and his presence with us are the thing that allow us to go and engage in this mission everywhere that we go. Be comforted and encouraged by that. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table, remind us of your son. Remind us of how far Jesus went to be with us. How far his presence goes with us, all the way to the cross, and then up out of the grave, and in us through his spirit. Remind us of that as we come to the table. In your name we pray. Amen.